ka mate te kainga tahi, ka ora te kainga rua. When one house dies, another one lives. Ena mana e nā reo e nā kārangatanga maha o nā hau e whā, nau mai peki mai, nau mai haere mai ki tēnei hōtaka nei a te ahi kā. Ko Maraia Rakraku ahau. Ko Justin Maria ahau, welcome back to Te Ahi Kā, where every week you can get your fix of kaupapa Māori, Māori stories here on Radio New Zealand National. Heard this? you'll be hearing a lot more of it over the Rugby World Cup period. In line with New Zealand Music Month, as we're profiling Māori Musos, two-day Reedy reviews the Catch a Fire album On the Road Again. That's coming up. And, and he uh, came down on his horse and he says to me, uh, uh, is that your name in the paper? I said, yes, it was. Uh, and he, he says, does the old people know? I said, no, they don't. I says, but they can't read in English, you know. <laughs> the uh, Poverty Bay Herald, and he, he couldn't, wouldn't recognise my name. You see, so anyway, he said, uh, "You're going to tell him." I said, "I'll tell him." I says, uh, and he says, uh, "Well, uh, it's not for me to stop you because he said I went away when I, when I was two years younger than you." And I looked at him and I said, you bloody blind hound. <laughs> and, and, and it wasn't until about five years ago, the wife and I was looking through through uh, some papers and I found his birth certificate. And it said, Robert Hagarai Smith, born 1901. And, it, and he was away in the war in... in, in uh, in the Great War. Yeah, yeah, in the yeah, First World War. Yeah, and 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 he was born in 1991, and he was over there in 1915, and so, so he, he was 14. 14. Yeah, he was. Goodness. That's Hingangarua Smith, 28th Māori Battalion vet, relaying to Mariah how he thought he was going to get a hiding from his father the day he enlisted in the army, aged 16 years old, well over 70 years ago. And discovering he wasn't the only one in the whānau who had enlisted underage. Nā reira Stick around for the next hour or so here on Radio New Zealand National. Ngā Kaihanga Uku is the national body representing Māori clay workers, and a month or so ago, Mariah visited them in Tangimuana, Manawatu, where they were rounding off a week-long wānanga. While there, she encountered Manawatu hospitality and those legendary winds. So we're just using, um, uh, packing the corrugated iron with an adobe clay mix, which is clay, sawdust, and Is the clay from here? No, well, the uku is actually from up the road. Yes, it's a Martin clay that they, there's a um, tile factory up there that celebrates a hundred years this year. 
So it is a locally sourced clay. It's a beautiful red clay. Um, so, you know, because the copepa is a low-cost wood-fired kiln, it was also about using the resources that are this, freely available available in this region. Oh, so, yeah. you know, being on the west coast, we've got lots of driftwood on the beach, and we have a small mill just down the road, so we can use all the pine offcuts before they get treated. Um, so we've got you know cheap resources available to be able to fire. Hmm. So that that mix is mixed up with. Newspaper. It's got some newspaper in it, really only because it was a wet night the other night and we just lay sheets of newspaper over it to soak up any excess moisture. But you can certainly do an adobe mix with uh, newspaper in it. So what does adobe mean, <coughs> Pido? <coughs> what does adobe mean? Is adobe just a, a name for well, it's something a that type of clay? Colleen, maybe you'd yeah. like to. South America, American Southwest, and the adobe houses that they built up on the, um, on the Pueblos. And they're built the same way with this adobe mix. Uh, warm in the winter, some of those Pueblos are up quite high and cool in the summer. Not very many windows in them. And then a flat top, right up on the top a roof where people can go and sit, catch the cool breeze. It's interesting, eh, Colleen, because um, there's been some criticism about making adobe houses in Aotearoa because they are not um, exactly conducive to the environment here. I think that they are. They're really, the cob houses down in the South Island are built exactly the same way. All right, so some of our first uh, colonial people that came out here, that's the sort of houses that they built. Now, Colleen, this cone is kind of in a U shape and it's got chicken wire on the outside of some corrugated iron. Yes. How deep has that been dug into the whenua? Not very deep at all. The only part that's gone down into the whenua are these waratahs, these steel waratahs that you know the farmers use for putting up their electric fences. <laughs> so there's one inside and there's one outside and it's holding it really steady. It. So, yes, yeah, so there's not much, not many holes going into Papa at all, really. It's just being built on the top. And how long, how big is the structure? It's probably by uh, just over a metre by a metre by a metre and probably about the one and a half, two metres high. And how long will it take for this to get done by the end of today? We hope to have this adobe mix all up today. And then, and then we'll look at firing it. And you can see the ports down the bottom. There's four of them. So the fire will be laid and it will slowly, slowly, slowly be pushed in to the centre under those drums, which will be loaded up with all the clay work. Now oh, I better, better start doing some mahi then. <laughs> Get your hands yeah, dirty, better start doing girl. some mahi. <laughs> okay, Rhonda, can you describe to me what you're doing? We are making a kiln, compacting uku onto the outside of the chicken mesh, which is tied to the iron, which is the inside of the kiln. And the uku is a combination of grass, newspaper. <laughs> it's grass at yeah, the moment. And some clay. Yeah, newspaper. It's got um, sawdust, sand in it, and the, it's a local Martin's clay. It's from Martin, I guess. Is there a certain type of clay that you've got to use for this kind of mahi? No, it's just uku, eh? So, Colleen, is this the same kind of clay that you would work into pieces? With additions of other materials in it to make it more plastic. 
Um, this is this is a rough sort of clay that would you'd use for brick and tile. Oh, yeah. Yep. So if you're wanting to do fine work, you'd need to put other things in with it. So it's compacting it into the chicken mesh. Yeah. So far, everyone's been working at this for about since about nine o'clock this morning. So that's about what two hours? Yeah, three two hours? hours. Two or three hours yeah. so far. It's going to be finished in about an hour, I reckon. <laughs> Speedy Gonzalez. <laughs> now, Colleen, there is a atua of, um, of this kind of mahi, isn't there? Yes, there is. And her name is Hene Okurangi. Well, this is according to our northern traditions anyway, from up at Te Taitokero. Uh, her name's Hene Okurangi, and she's the daughter of Pūtoto which was the blood that was shed when the two parents were separated and cut apart. It ran back in, so Pūtoto is the personification of that blood that was shed, and Parafenoamea, which is the purest of waters. So what you're looking at when you have a look at the actual whakapapa itself is the action of water on rock, which finally comes down to the finest of sands and gravels, all of which are named, all of which have their their own their own name and descend from one to the other. Is Aotearoa quite rich in terms of clay? Uh, compared to the some of the islands in the Pacific, yes it is. Um, perhaps our clays aren't quite as fine as the Australian clays. Uh, that's mainly because Australia is an older continent. There's been more time for that uh, for the clay to weather and to get finer and more plastic, just like it has in North America. But yes, we, in comparison, we are quite rich in clay, and while we didn't have a ceramic tradition, we certainly had um, a real knowledge of clay and what it could be used for. Now, you're a member of Nakai Hanga Uku, that's, that's right, the Māori Clay yeah. Workers Association. Yes. How long has that been around for? Uh, since um, probably the mid-80s is when we, when we started. Um, it was Bay and, and Manuel Nathan that... Uh, actually began uh, Kaihanga Uku, but some of us have been working in clay for a long, long time. I mm -hmm. mean, I started at high school back in about 1954, 55, and I've been playing around with it ever since. Playing around. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just one of the most foremost clay workers, yep. Yeah. It's still playing, as you can see, and you've had your hands in it yourself. Oh, it's great. So, yeah. yeah. And the purpose of this will be to fireworks? Yeah, which we've already done, and, and they're around the side there. So once we've got all this done, then we will stack it up into those three drums that once was a 44-gallon drum. And, Get it times uh, yeah. um, So we'll have three chambers and then we'll slowly light the fire, slowly get it inside, because we'll need to warm the clay first. You can't just put a fire in there and have a big roaring fire going because it's just going to turn any water that's left in those clay pieces into steam and they're going to break. We don't want that to happen. So we'll take it very, very slowly and dry it first and then when we think it's dry enough, then we'll let it roar. And it's going to be interesting to see if it's actually got a voice once it's really going, because quite often the kilns do. 
Like dragons. Yeah, and then is that when you give them their name? That's where you will give it a name, <laughs> definitely. I love it. It would be a shame for it not to have a name. Now, how is how safe is the tradition of Māori clay working at the moment in Aotearoa? I think it's it's very safe. We may not have huge numbers, but those numbers keep growing all the time. And the ones that come into Nākaihanga Oku are those who are really committed to the clay kaupapa. So it's not everyone that can just come in and call themselves Nākaihanga Oku. What we like to do is have wānangas like this, where we share the information that we've got and everybody's on the same kaupapa. Because you know, we're not... We're not a Sino tradition. We don't look back to Japan, we don't look back to England or to the continent. What we're looking back to is the information of our own culture in regards to clay. So would that include Lapita pottery? It does because they are our tupuna. I mean, so we're stretching way yeah, back. We're, we're stretching way, way <laughs> back and, and those Lapita people um, eventually developed into the Polynesians. You know, people often say to me, where, oh, so where did the Polynesians come from? And I say they didn't come from anywhere. They evolved here in the Pacific. But uh, their ancestors are definitely the Lapita peoples. And that's a clay that's been used uh, for the adobe for the outside of the kiln. And this fire's a lovely, rich red colour, and I don't have an example, but you know how bricks, house bricks are typically anywhere between red and orange. Well, this clay is uh, towards a darker red clay. I was talking to the owner of the um, kiln works uh, when I picked up the clay the other day and he said they recently had an order for so many thousands of bricks for a house that was being built in fielding. So I can just imagine that there's this very red, dark red house in the landscape and fielding. I mean, it's lovely, really. So that's the, the Martin clay. Um, with Kaihanga Uku, when we get together, it's an opportunity for us to uh, workshop, catch up with each other, um, exchange skills. So we typically use this time to get in clays that we don't necessarily work with. So we've actually gotten in a lot of uh, white clays to have a play with, you know, to see the, how they are in terms of hand, hand building and how they work with the techniques that we use in our own work. Um, but this range of works that's on the table now, uh, pieces that have been made here, so they'll go into the kiln, they'll be fired. Um, and I know some of that clay looks like marble. It right, a marble it's a white texture. clay, yes, yes. Wow, is it yes. the finish that's... That the artist has put on it? It's, it's the type of clay, so that's a white clay over this red clay of the Martin clay, and some of the white clay is used as a slip over the top of a red clay, like that kanohi there. Right. So she's carved it back and let the white show through. Uh, with Colleen's work, she uses a wax resist, so she paints her wax patterns, which are typically Lapita-style patterns, and then she brushes over the clay with a white slip, which is a... A slip is really just a fine, a much finer clay. I know, I'm getting anxious about how strong the wind is that the works are going to no, get. No, they're not going to go. No, they're not. Not, no, not at all. This is only a little wind. <laughs> this is a little wind <laughs> yeah. at, uh, at uh, Tarimwana. Have you started naming them? <laughs> 
would be good if I could. <laughs> um, so, yes, so some of the works have been made um, during the workshop specifically for the firing, and some pieces have come in that have been already bisked. There's a number of bisque works like Colleen's La Dish. Describe what bisque is. Bisque is a preliminary firing, really. Yes. So it just means that you're not going to damage the clay. Now, Pato has um, toy iho and the situation there had an impact on Kaihanga Uku? Well, I can't say in terms of Kaihanga Uku itself, um, but certainly for me it hasn't as such. Um, I'm not a big seller of work. Um, but I will still use my toy iho mark in terms of promoting my work because I think it's a it's a very valid and uh, you know it's a valid tohu for Mariata. So while toy iho isn't being used anymore, I'm pretty sure that a lot of artists are using it regardless. So I'm going to make an amateur comment here, yes. just doing a scan of the works yes. here. I mean, these to me are of a high standard. Indeed. I'm not seeing any any intermediate yes. starter, intermediate veteran. They all look yes. equal. Yes, right. indeed. Mm. Absolutely. Right. So is this the level of production that Nakaihanga Nak Uku yes, it is. are at? It is. It is. And we have, we have newer um, members on board uh, like Hera over there, who's running away, but this is this is Hera's work here, and the work is just so lovely. And I was just talking to Hera earlier about how she became involved with Kaihanga Uku. Hera could probably tell you herself, <laughs> but she said it was through a workshop that Manos had uh, run. That's Manos Nathan. Manos Nathan at uh, Ponsonby, and she was there for the workshop. So. She became totally inspired. Manos sort of saw her work and her, invited her to be part of Ngakaihanga Uku. The whole thing about Ngakaihanga Uku is that we're not a select group of clay workers. And it's not elite. It's not elite, but there is a standard of work that uh, we think my work to. could be Ngakaihanga <laughs> Uku standard. So really, in terms of you know, you know, a membership into Kaihanga Uku, it is a passion for clay. It is a passion for Māori art. And it's to be involved with the rōpū, you know. But because the, as, as in terms of being involved, then we extend the kaupapa and extend our network bag, and we maintain a level in terms of the of the mahi that we do. It's important. And how, comparatively, with Pākehā, who are working in the same art form... Do are we doing? Yeah. Do oh, you see I, any differences? Well, or? I think I think we certainly stand alone, and um, there are different uh, uh, concepts that we work with in terms of our. But you can see that the work here is speaking about Māori art. Aye. So we, even if I was to see this in another country, I would immediately identify it as being Māori. Yes. Yes. So we work, we have a commitment to um, extending our art form and our cultural base. So while we can do work that's um, quite abstract and independent um, in terms of what we do here, they're all connected, really. So we're anchored within um, 
a Māori kaupapa, and that doesn't restrict the work that we do. This this piece here, for example, could you describe it, Fido? Um, it's a small, hollow oval form, which uh, with two openings, and it has a central channel through it, which is quite abstract to look at. But if I saw that, I'd think, oh, that's a nuru. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and for me, that channel suggests that it could have muka through it in Aye. some way. So while they're abstract in their form, they have Māori associations to them. But I think, too, you know, that tells me as well is that you know Māori art as well, because we are assuming that all Māori know about Māori art. Do all Māori know about Māori art? Is that the question? Uh, or how do you define... How is Māori art defined? I guess there's, you know, I, th I always consider myself really lucky because I see um, quality Māori art all of the time. So I think my own aesthetic in terms of Māori art is quite finely tuned. Um, and I suppose then, on the other hand, we have uh, examples like the little Chinese kete that are used all the time to present our tanga. I get a bit irritated yeah. with it because... But for some... That's their connection to a kete is a Chinese kete, you know, and I have to bite my tongue. But, you know, if they knew about our weaving... It's not even made out of harakeke, though. I know, it's though. not even made out of harakeke. Oh. But I'm not so sure if they can differentiate that, except that it's... OK, you know, it looks like harakeke. Not. <laughs> it looks like plastic. It looks like plastic, yeah. And it's... I think it's really important that we try and change... That way of, you know, it's a bit like we actually we kind of belittle our own art when we buy into that because of, you know, it is cheaper to go down to the two dollar shop, buy one of those, get to cut them up, sew them up into a kete, rather than, you know, maybe go and ask somebody to make a little kornai or. Yeah. Does Māori clay work have a strong place within Māori art form? Oh, indeed. Indeed, absolutely. I think that I'm a firm believer that uh, Māori clay, in terms of our classical art forms, such as whakairo, raranga and tuhituhi, I think Māori clay has really raced along. And I think part of the reason of that is that we have people such as Manus Nathan, who's a carver, who's come into clay. But I'm a weaver, I have a weaving background, and a lot of my early work was combining muka with clay. So there's other disciplines, other Māori disciplines that come into our clay work. And I think that that's the reason partly why uh, uku has kind of raced ahead, really. You know, there's Wee and his carving background. This artist there... That's, that's Wee Taepa. Taepa, yes. Um, this, this hue shape here. The hue, uh, beautiful. There's two hue. I'm looking at oh, no. Yes. Um, and that's uh, Chrissy Paul. She's just come on board at this wānanga with Ngā Kaihanga Uku. And um, she does actually have a bit of a clay background when she was a student, but it was a traditional European background of wheel work. We're working collaboratively together I'll do the hue forms and she carves so she's um, and this is one of her small oval carved pieces there so um, and that one that lovely little orange pale orange one that's another one of headers yeah. and you can see that she has 
She could easily move into Fukairo. She could. She's got a thing she's about just, texture. She's got texture and line mm. and finish. Mm. And this is who's here too, of course. But so beautiful. beautiful. They're beautiful. They're exquisite. <laughs> they are. Yeah. How long have you been working in this art form for? Not long. I just it's it's just every now and then. Yeah. Holy moly, but this looks like um seasoned blinking been uh, in it for yonks. Well Mahi. It's it's probably because it's got the notching on it, you know, the 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 you know, Māori designs. So I'm really familiar with that. But but it's just using what you know about Māori design and Māori art and then just it's just another material that you use. So instead of carving it in wood, I've carved it in clay. Mm. And it's kind of, you know, and, and it's it's really nice to know that um, that you can do that and it I feel quite comfortable with it. Mm. Just kind of happened, really. So by not long, how long, Chrissy? Mm. Couple of years. Um, couple of months. <laughs> just every now and then. Well, over just, a month. <laughs> no, no, just every now and then. Like I did a st this one here. I did a stint after work. You know, at night I'd do it um, after work for about a couple of months, and I'd kind of focus for a bit. And then I haven't done it for like the last time I touched clay might have been a year ago. You know, it's, it's a bit like that. How do you come up with the design? Because uh, what we're looking it's at really is just a, exploring. It's exploring. How big is it? Do. We're looking at a clay work that is shaped into like a, a hui a design, hui, like a gourd form. Yep. And how big is it? Uh, it's probably about just over twelve inches. What? Two hundred. Centimeters, yeah. I mean, 20 centimeters, 200 millimeters, yeah. I mean, I started you know by doing those that smaller one over there, that other little brown one, yeah. And I thought, oh, this works really well, you know. And it's trying to get the, the carving and then the sort of textural thing happening as well on the clay because clay has its own. Um, um, strengths and own um, uh, but but you know so you, you it's really just what I've been doing is just exploring what you can do with the clay and what you can do with the chisel and how you can work the work the surface and those sorts of things and watching what other people do and when you go to the mud, I always go and look at the notches on the carvings and try and yeah, sink it in my brain. Yeah, I can see that. I can see how you've done that yeah. in your work. Yeah. Like, even though they are what I would um, identify as being very Māori in their design, they're also not. Mm. 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 Yeah. yeah. Just exploring it. So, at the moment, that's kind of like a... Um, milk chocolate kind of colour mm. when it's fired what sort of colour will it turn into um, I'm not sure <laughs> <laughs> I haven't fired one yet so um, <clears throat> see I mean that one over there that was made out of a white clay um, is that one of yours <clears throat> is over there that's too? one of mine over there that's already fired I don't know I think it's probably going to come up with sort of like a red colour and if we do put it into like the wood fire kiln other things will happen to it 
um, but I might fire it and then put a glaze on it. So we kind of uh, looking, you know, exploring what sort of glazes might suit it. Do you end up naming them, Chrissy? No, no, well, I'm no. And it's not like a sculpture, you know. It's like a pot, really. And do you end up selling them commercially? Um, I hope to. Oh, <laughs> I haven't, but yeah. I was born in Fakatane, and uh, my tribal affiliations are Tuhoi, uh, Tiarawa, Rungufakata, uh, and also Ngatiawa brought me up. Kia ora. Kia ora, Chrissy Paul finishing the quartet that featured Paido Cornell, Colleen Ehrlich, Ronda, Dorothy Waitford, and the rest of the whanau that were part of the Wananga. For photos of the adobe kiln and the clay works, head to radionz.co.nz forward slash te ahika. You'll see there's a photo gallery with images of some of the kaupapa we've covered on te ahika. And make sure to check out our Facebook page too. You'll find the link there. Click like and you'll see our updates every week. I'm Mariah Rakraku. And I'm Justine Murray and this is Te Ahika. Fire. That's one name that is synonymous with reggae and Aotearoa. Last year, their sixth album, On the Road Again, was released, and since then they have been busy as. They sure have, and they're gaining some momentum overseas with tours that include Hawaii, Buenos Aires, and the States. So that's the hype. What about the reality? So let's call it all about Catch a Fire, H Town, represent. They're from Hamilton, and uh, the album, On the Road Again. What do you think of it? I thought it was uh, all of the songs solid. You know, they're all good, solid songs. But I noticed in this uh, album, it was quite diverse because, uh, as I have found out later, they uh, they used uh, some new songwriters in the band. You know, they got some of the new guys, or not new guys, but some of the guys who hadn't written uh, songs previously, they got them to write songs for this album. And uh, the people who wrote them then also produced them. So across the album... You, you hear songs that you've heard similar to previous Catch a Fire songs and you hear these other ones that uh, by these people they haven't written before that sound quite different. What do you think that was? Do you think Catch a Fire perhaps wanted just a, a, a new flavour to their sound? Yeah, I think, uh, well, I actually had a little chat to Logan and um, he said, you know, it, over the years, uh, they, Logan and Jamie, one of the other... Logan Bell? Yeah, Jamie yeah. Ferguson. Yes, then they uh, Leon Davy came in um, and con- started contributing. But over the years, uh, he said, you know, it's a natural development that the others have started to have their own voice and write their own songs, and it's uh, time to allow that to come through on the albums. So on the road again, we're talking about this album. Can we talk about the songs mm. and in particular? What did you? How did you find the? Well, since you've spoken about new writers, yeah. has that reflected in the sound? Yeah, I think it has. Uh, it's diverse in terms of its style and its production. I, I would say that uh, some, whilst all the songs are solid, some of them stand out as being really, uh, I think, excellent songs and uh, fantastic compositions, well arranged, um, uh, great instrument, uh, great playing and vocal arrangements and all of that. And uh, some of them, I think, are, are still strong songs, but uh, you can possibly see that. That this that some of the writers uh, and the producers are still quite new. Um, that's not a criticism. It's just that you can see that 
yeah, some really stand out as being uh, as having quite a lot of complexity. And uh, this album, if you if you listen to the songs and look at the lyrics and the words of the songs, uh, I think it, a lot of it is influenced by their life on the road overseas. I had three favourites. One is called uh, You're Dreaming, um, and it's got this ukulele intro, then it's got a sax and a flute, really catchy hooks, and it's got this really laid-back sound, almost like um, I had a listen to like Jimmy Cliff, and it's like those early 70s really Jamaican sort of yeah. laid-back calypso sound and great vocals, but it's sort of... Uh, it kind of uh, deceives you a bit because when you have a good listen, it's really complex. Everything is quite, uh, um, quite, quite meticulous how they've arranged. Well, your it all. your experience in arranging music would probably bit. come to the forefront. Is yeah. it multi layered? Um, I think Ukulele. it's. I think it's more um, the way they've arranged it rather than the multi layering the tracks and harmonies and things. It's just the the way that they've been really deliberate in how they've done everything. And I actually, when talking to Logan, he said that. That was partly influenced <clears throat> by the fact that uh, they were a covers band when they, you know, before they really started doing the originals, yeah. and they had to nail everything. You know, you have to nail it like the song, so you don't noodle around too much, and you don't right. muck around and have huge guitar solos. So that's kind of come into their songwriting. It's uh, quite deliberate where they put everything. So that was one excellent song I like. The name of that song again? It's called uh, "You're Dreaming." It's number three on the the album. Was um, Groove Again. It's got um, this um, just amazing funky intro. It actually sounds like Billie Jean. <laughs> the drum track gets a. Is it that basic? I, I didn't get quite no, the get drum to track that track. Is, it's, it's just got this, and then over the top of that comes reggae, and then it's also got this funky backbeat to it as well. It sounds a bit like the. Uh, have you heard a song, Funky Kingston by uh, Toots and the Maytails? It's kind of like uh, funk. And reggae mixed in, into one. Does it work though? It works, man. It's really, really good. Yeah. 
another one that I liked is Is This Familiar? It's a kind of departure. I think Leon might have written that one. Um, but it's got kind of a, a slightly hip-hop kind of drum rhythms to it. And I think they're recorded, you know, they're generated drum tracks. Might be backed by an actual drummer. But it's just got this amazing, um, amazing vocal intro. And then it just takes off into almost a dance sort of floor beat. But uh, really, really well done. This is the rhythm of a fire, yeah. This is the rhythm of a love. This is the rhythm of a fire, yeah. This is the rhythm of a love. Hey. I'm with Two Day Reading. We're reviewing Catch a Fire's uh, latest album, On the Road Again. If you had to make any improvements today to the album, what would they be? Well, that's a hard one because you're talking about guys that have been doing it. You know, this is their their job, and uh, but um, I would say the 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 diversity of the songs sometimes was a little bit uh, jarring. Oh, well, not jarring! It was just a shock to hear because there's some completely different feels. In well, here. I know in one track in particular they use a vocoder. Vocoder, yeah, yeah, I heard that, or maybe even a couple. Uh, Oh. But yeah, that, that's and for uh, people who don't know what a vocoder is, today, uh, it just ch- gets you, changes the pitch of your voice. Yeah, it's like uh, that very kind of quickly. computery type of like technique. Like she, she sort of brought it out, you know, back she in the day. She did too yeah, in yeah. the song Believe. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you're on top, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you n- n- rattled that one off. Um, Sorry, vocoder, yep. Yeah, so I think, um, although it's you know it's been great to have all the guys writing and producing their own songs, um it 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 did the the result was some very different sounding songs and and the consistency in terms of the production did differ so maybe you know the guys write but they the the production and the the sort of overview of it is you know just is consistent but you know, I'm not criticising them at all. I mean, it's a yeah. great album. I mean, in the start of our interview today, you did mention that you, they had some new writers on board. You had spoken to Logan Bell um, in preparation for this review, which is a choice. Yeah. Um, now, I'm just reading. Uh, this is from the New Zealand Herald uh, review from the website, and this is uh, in their song "Is This Familiar." They want to look you up like a creme brulee. Oh yeah, they have the right to a dance parade. <laughs> I, I heard that line. I was asking, what the heck? so I didn't even know what a creme brulee was. So I had to ask my partner. <laughs> And she said it's a dessert. It's a type the, of pudding. Yeah, yeah, with a, a thing on the glaze on the top. And I, I mean, went, oh, okay. uh, catch your fire lyrics. No. No, or, or, you know, they're going international. You know, they, uh, <laughs> you've got a, you know, it's probably the Are sophisticated. They going to no, no, no. Actually, uh, yeah, yeah, or to be, um, to be honest, they are. They, I, I talked about their touring schedule and uh, they're going to, they're going to, these are countries all over the world now, like uh, USA, UK, Europe, Amsterdam. And uh, Aussie, of course, but they're really hitting uh, South America coming up for the first time, and they actually said that their uh, uh, their audiences are, are growing. You know, even after ten years, it's not a dr- it's not the same old same old. The audiences are growing. He, he said it's great because reggae has a fan base uh, all over the world, and they're now doing um, doing soul gigs of three thousand or so over in the states, and uh, t- headlining gigs of ten thousand people, which is uh, which is for them, you know, it's, it's it's still growing, still developing, so it's great. But yeah, that that lyric was a <laughs> that came out. Of, I was like, what the? But I love the song. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, maybe it shows that they truly are. Well, that's actually quite good that they're going international. And do you think the boys are more popular overseas? 
Well, I know that um, they're spending about 70% of their time over there now. Like uh, Most of their gigs are overseas. So um, for them, it's something they're really looking to develop, and they're getting really popular. And uh, especially with uh, you know combining with groups, with the Hawaiian reggae groups, Rebel Soldiers. Kolohe Kai uh, recently. Kai. Um, and that, that they're popular overseas, and I guess it all works together to push them forward. But I believe, yeah, that interna- internationally is where they're focused. And I understand that it's working. You know, the, after ten years, it's it's starting to really grow. They're good songs. You may recall last year some of the members of Catch a Fire, Jamie Ferguson, Logan Bell, and Leon Davy had a quarter with us. We'll end tonight's program with one of their songs, Love Letter. It might sound familiar, and you're going to hear a lot more of it hard out, as it's one of the theme songs for this year's Rugby World Cup campaign. And again at our webpage, radionz.co.nz forward slash te we've got some links posted for y'all. Hingangarua Smith's story about how he enlisted in the army as a 16-year-old reads like an adventure in subterfuge similar to those found in the boys' annual series, popular during the time. Last year, I met Hinga at the 28th Māori Battalion reunion hui in Taupo and sat with him as we toured Lake Taupo by boat and he relayed the lengths he went to to avoid detection from his whānau. You were 16 when you joined? Yeah, I was still at school. What made you join? Well, I wanted to get away because I saw all these fellas going away, leaving and on the buses and... and uh, going away in, uh, overseas and so I thought I'd go uh, myself and buddy and I'd join the 16 but unfortunately the recruiting officer in, in Gisborne was a, a fellow that knew my father and, and he says to me uh, Who, who's your father? I said oh Robert Smith and he says I uh, know oh, Rob he said I was in the First World War with him I said, oh, and he said, I said, that's good, he says, and he says, the thing about it is he brought his eldest son here to to try and get an adult apprenticeship for him, and he was 20. He says, are you older than the, the chappy? And I said, no, I said, I'm not. He says, well, you're not bloody 21, he says. <laughs> well, caught out. And that's how you got caught out. Oh, it's caught out, probably. But, but what he did, he, he put, he enlisted me in the First Hawks Bay Regiment, a territorial regiment. He says, you go there till you're bloody 21. And he says, then you can go. But see, at that time when he was talking to me, I was only 16. So I thought, oh, okay, it's not bad because I'll, I'll, I'll be in the army somewhere. <laughs> and was, so when I got to 20, what, what they perceived as 21, my age, I uh, I was conscripted then. And Maori said, you know, you, you volunteered. But I never argued because I wanted to go. So I just let them. That you got conscripted? Yeah. How? But, eh? How did you get through in conscription? I was conscripted by. Because I was in already in the territorials. And when I became 21, they just said, Well, you're 21, you have to go overseas. So I said, Okay. 
I could have said no, I'm not going because I'm a Maori and I can I can volunteer, but I didn't. But uh, I just said no. I, I'll go, and, and that, that's how I ended up. Uh, but I was still, at that time, only 18 or because I was 16 when I went in. Because I told him I was this, where I fell down was this uh, recruiting officer who knew my father. It was way in the first world war, and he and he knew my oldest brother, Chappie, was only 20. <laughs> <laughs> Consequently, I was uh, down, downgraded to 19. <laughs> now, Hinge, you were telling me about how you thought your father was waiting for you after you had first tried? Yeah, yeah. He, he, well, he was waiting for me when he's read my name in the paper. And, and he came down on his horse. And he says to me, uh, uh, is that your name in the paper? I said, yes, it was. Uh, and, he, and he says, does the old people know? I said, no, they don't. I says, For, they can't read in English, you know. <laughs> the uh, Poverty Bay Herald. And he, he couldn't, wouldn't recognize my name, you see. So anyway, he said, uh, you're going to tell him? I said, I'll tell him. I says, uh, and he says, uh, well, uh, it's not for me to stop you because he said I went away when I, when I was two years younger than you and I looked at him and I said you bloody lie down <laughs> and it wasn't until about five years ago the wife and I was looking through through uh, some papers and I found his birth certificate and it said Robert Hagarai Smith born 1901 and he, and he was away in the war, in 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 the in the, in the Great War. Yeah, in, in the yeah, First in the World, World War. Yeah, and, and and he was born in 1991, and he was over there in 1915. And so, so he was 14. 14. Yeah, he was. Goodness. Uh, so I, I I've never forgotten that because he said, "Well, I, enough for me to say you can't go because I was two years younger than you." Because uh, I thought he was lying. It's because I, of course, I was 16, and I said, "How can he get a 14?" <laughs> but it was, uh, it was about five years ago. And the wife and I was looking, and we saw he got his birth certificate. When I saw 1901 on the bloody birth certificate, I knew sir, he was right. Uh, 14. And my father was brought up by by uh, Peter Awatera's parents in Rotorua. And uh, when uh, Muki was made the the colonel in the Maori Battalion overseas, and and my father died while I was overseas, so he he, he called me, my brother Chappie and my half-brother Henry grew into the to report to the ordinary room at six o'clock that evening. So the three of us got together and, we, and when I said, what, what's going on? I said, why, why do three of us have to go to see him? And Henry said, oh, I don't know, we'll soon find out. 
And when we when we got there, there's a minister and and Mukta in the room. And I, and he said, oh, hey, he says we sit down. He said I have some sad news to tell you. He says Bob, your father, he says passed away back home. And uh, he says uh, we'll have a little service. And, and it was the minister was there for, but he, but he, we heard him. And it was then that I, I thought I said, uh, he said Bob was my foster brother, you know. And I, and I sort of looked at him, and he said, uh, my my parents brought him up. He didn't know. No, none of his knew. No. And, he, and he was dead right. He so that's how the three of you learned that your father yeah, yeah, died. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The three of us, uh, when Mukta called us in, he says, "Bob was my foster brother." He says. So he said, oh. and we're sitting there, three of us, you know, looking. But we were wondering why the minister was there. But then when he said he died, so he said we have a, we had a little service. We thanked him, you know, for bringing us here. He said, "Well, we're all." He says, "We're all family." For I know what that is. Go back. So we all took off again. He says, "Go back and do the job you came here for." So we're there, the three of you who served during the Second World War. Yeah, yeah. You and two of your yeah. brothers. I, I was. I went away first before the others, my older brothers. And and uh, what happened was, my elder elder brother said, "Oh, he said the old man told me to, to go overseas and make a man himself. He's going." Join your brother. <laughs> He's talking about me. So consequently, he, he, he came over. He signed up. Him and uh, him and the other fellow. Two of them. Hang on. Who was at home? Eh? Who was at home? At home, I, I was brought up in Hawichi by my my. Uh, actually, he was my grand uncle, my grandfather's brother. His name was Hingangaro Takarohi, and uh, and uh, and my uh, grandmother, and her name was Mede Rehana. That's that's who she was, and she was from uh, Tiki Tiki. But my my grand grand uncle, he was born in Mahi, same as my grandfather. They were both born in, but one was Ngarangi only. My, my, uh, and uh, the fellow that brought me up, Hingangaro Takarohi, but they were brothers. Their surnames were different. Hmm. That was often the case back then. Yeah. Hmm. I, thought the, uh, I, just, I don't know what they call myself, Hingangaro Takarohi. <laughs> so where does the Smith come from? Oh, your no, father. My father. Robin. Yeah, yeah. Now, my Smith, I followed that back to see how we come to be Smith, but you see, my, uh, back in the 1848 census in the South Island, 
is the name Titi came in. Now this Titi was a Titi was a, a 1848 census in the Blue Book, and uh, and she married a fellow Rutherford. Rutherford. She married a fellow called Rutherford, an Englishman, and they had a daughter. And her name was Sarah Jane Rutherford. Sarah Jane Rutherford, I said. And Sarah Jane Rutherford. And that Sarah Jane Rutherford married William Smith. And William Smith was a was a whaler. And that's how we come to have from them. From this fellow was actually my. Uh, uh, great grandfather. That's all. Not that far back. No, it's not. See, my uh, my grandfather's name was. They had they had uh, uh, four kids and, and and a daughter, four children there. And uh, that's right. And then, and my grandfather was George out of this lot here. George Smith. And then Robert, and, and then, then Robert, you. Robert, and then me. Yeah. <coughs> Robert Hakarai. You joined up at sixteen. Yeah, when I was still at school. Still I just went to school and I went to the post office, filled out the forms, away it went. About a month later, I get this thing in the go to uh, a ticket to go to Gisborne for uh, to be medically examined for. Uh, for overseas service, and uh, so I caught the bus. I took a day off from school, put a long pants on, and uh, I didn't tell the old people. I, I put the long, I took my long pants and hid it in the hedge by the. Was our house was a was about a hundred hundred yards away from the side of the road, and uh, and I went down the thing, hid it in the hedge, and and I left home with in my. School clothes. When I got to the hedge, I, I, I took my pants, short pencil, and put the long ones on. And, and, and the bus come along from the east coast, followed all the Maori, all the new recruits on board. Did you yeah. know them? No, they were all shearers and bloody fences and bloody lay, all and all drunk. Everybody, oh boy, I said, what does he pick that? And somebody said, what's that schoolboy doing on big, big, big? And I was going with these bastards. Jesus Christ, and that was some of my relations. And this fellow said, this fellow moaned, said, boy, who's your father? I said, Bob Smith. Oh, Jesus, Jesus. Oh, he said, Bob, I'm my cousin. He said, my cousin. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was funny. Yeah. So hang on, what did the old people do when they found out? Well, they, they couldn't read uh, the papers properly, you know. So they would have only heard that you'd gone. They would have no, wondered no, they where would, you no, were. No, they, they wouldn't have heard at all because nobody did, knew. But they would have wondered where you were when you didn't come home from school. No, no. I, was, I, was, I, I came home... Uh, no, I only went for the day. Uh, like I went at nine o'clock. I caught the bus nine o'clock. Went to Gisborne, and I was back in Tolaga at three o'clock. 
So I, so I got into my school clothes again and wrapped my clothes up and, and they thought I'd just come back from school. <laughs> Put my clothes in. I, they never knew. But my father knew. And he came down on his horse and, and he says to me, that's your name in the paper? I said, yep. Because they couldn't, uh, the old lady could read only bugger all he knows. I couldn't read Parker. Yes, bloody thing, but she couldn't make out uh, some words like uh, uh, the volunteers <laughs> for overseas service. And the list of names, <laughs> they got to, uh, to the garrison hall in, uh, in Gisborne. We all got off the bus, and all of me and, and me, and I was a crush, I was only a kid, you know. I mean, it stood out amongst all these bloody shearers and fences and, 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 uh, <laughs> and, and baby face with it. <laughs> and we all went into the drill hall, and, and uh, they said, all right, he says, line up in uh, uh, these doctors in these uh, uh, cubicles will examine each one of you individually. So, form up a queue, so we just formed up a queue, you know, uh, four of them, four queues. And anyway, this joker came out from the, from this, the, what, this queue I was in, and he said something to these guys in front, I didn't quite catch it in Maori, see? And and, uh, and it turned out to be what he said, Wayne, see? And they all took off, you see? Because I, 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 I wasn't hearing properly, you know? And I was uh, and so I just stood there and the door opened, this woman says, what are you standing there for? She said, I haven't got all day to wait. She says, get in here. So you had to take all your clothes off? Yeah, yeah I had to go in there. And, and she wanted to feel my testicles, you know, to make me cough. It's a thing that, you know, it, it's called the doctor. Well, geez, I backed myself into the corner and I wanted in the buddy. <laughs> she said, stand still, she said. You've never had anything like that happen to you before, had you? Know, you? Yeah, no, she was been in her 50s. <laughs> she said, and I doubled up in the back and I started to back away. She said, stand still, she said. And she grabbed my testicles. She says, now cough. I said, what? What did you say? Cough. I don't know what the hell cough is going to do with that. That's how ignorant it is. Hanger, how many times did you have to undergo a physical examination like that in your army life? Well, well that, that was the only one. Actually, but the others are the doctors. When they test you for VD, they, they they call it a short arm inspection. That was the term they used, you know. So you all had to front up. And you just had a doctor have a look at you, see if you didn't have any diseases.
but I didn't mind that because I mean uh, we, I know what was uh, what it was all about. They were looking for venereal venereal diseases, see, <laughs> and and they were all men, like uh, Doctor Bennett, Henry Bennett. Yeah. I know why I said, oh, yes. that's a black one. <laughs> <laughs> and we all laugh, yeah. you know, real marriage stuff. So what was the name of the ship that you shipped out on? Rice, Rice, R-U-Y-S, R-M-S, Rice. I think that's it, yeah, Dutch. And what did you come back on? What did the Mary Battalion come back on? Uh, this this uh, this uh, boat picked us up in uh, in Toronto, and it was full of Albrights, all coming to New Zealand. I'm trying to think of the boat we came back on. Yeah, it was full of Albrights. I know. <laughs> when the doctor, all these women hanging out with the thing and and kids. Look at that. So, what was the country that you first went to when, I, when you left Aotearoa? Australia. Fremantle. Yeah, that's where we touched Fremantle. We went from Fremantle to Aden. Where's that? In the bottom end of the canal, of the Suez Canal. How long did that trip take? Weeks and weeks. Yeah, be, be over a week. Still crazy by the time you got to Aden? Yeah, well, you see, we had destroyers with us for a while. Because when we left, it was about... Uh, at one stage, there was seven troop ships, uh, carrying troops in, in uh, Perth. But some was going to Burma, some was going to India. They were going all over the place. And, but ours was going to uh, to Egypt, the Middle East. And, uh, we had a lot of cover, like with the destroyers and that, but then as we got less and less, and then in, uh, one morning we woke up and we were on our own. And the next minute the plane was flying over the top. And, uh, and that's all the cover we had was a plane going around and around. And but at night we zigzagged and, and then as we got nearer to the thing where they put a balloon up on the cable to stop the, any dive bombers coming in. All the troops had, had that. Why would that stop dive bombers from coming in? Well, to drop bombs on you. Why would a balloon stop it? Or the, see, when, when the plane dived, it come down. It, they got a diver at the ship, see, and, and, and uh, to release it, then fall away. And with the cable hanging there above the ship, and uh, the uh, they could hit it. Instead. Yeah, take the wing off. It. See, they're going to be. Wasn't careful. worth the risk. Yeah, but uh, when you got a convoy of uh, twenty-one boats and that, gee, and all these balloons up there. Like a network, you know. <coughs> Did it seem like an adventure when you were on the boat? Oh, yeah. Right up until the, the first battle. Where was and your the, first battle? 
south of Italy. I was one of the new boys in the bus. Come on, come on, get it. So that next. I, I, did, I didn't like it at all, but you know, I got I waited and waited, and then they, uh, the older fella says, "Oh boy," he says, "You wait," and, the, and then the first, uh, the real first action I, I, I went in was in Rimini, further up from Italy in the coast. Well, by then I'd been there quite a while, and I'd. Be, I was used to the thing to uh, to the uh, dead people and things, you know. <laughs> I said to uh, to these fellows, uh, "Oh, I was yeah, Major Tipunga, this fella, Tipunga. Uh, when we went for left New Zealand, he he took us back, and he said, "Well, boys, he's have down there," and he said. Uh, I hope I'm looking after you fellas, you know. Well, he never looked after me because I went to C Company and he was a D Company man. And, uh, and, uh, but uh, when I was with C Company, uh, there's a lot of uh, fellas from Tolaga that I knew, you know. Oh boy, what are you doing here? And, and these fellas are all talking about different. Uh, okay, okay, okay. Sis. I'll take it. Watch out, this. Watch out for that. And the same thing was when when my brother arrived, my eldest brother. He arrived. There, we came back from one action to our to have a feed. Eh? We had, we'd. Uh, our cooks had arrived with their Dixies and all hot on the back of the jeeps and all these fellas were lined up and there were reinforcements to, for us, for the Maritana. And I happened to look down the hill and I, I saw my brothers in the queue. So I said, hey, chubby! I went over and shook hands. <laughs> Uh, I, uh, I, uh, Did Chappie come home, Hinger? Did Chappie come home? Yeah, yeah, he came home. We all came home, three of us. So, but when I, when I saw, saw Chappie there, I, you know, your heart swelled. It's kind of sad here, but then, yeah. Why was it kind of sad? Felt like there, you know. And I, I had two brothers there with me. One was uh, my half brother, and he was the eldest of all of us. Chappie was next, then the fellow Dawson, and then me. But this Dawson, he was a, a Bible banger. Right here, preaching the oh, yeah, but I said to Chappie, I said to Chappie, I said, I hope you didn't bring Dawson with him. And he had a bit of a laugh. <laughs> oh no, he said, he said, he's still banging the good old book. <laughs> he, he was a good fellow, my uh, Dawson, but he was uh, kind of... Uh, Funny that way, you know, they get religious and... But zealous. Yeah. And I get the... Uh, oh, with them, you know. Kia ora, Smith.
At our website, radioNZ.co.nz forward slash Te Ahika, we have a longer version of that kōrero. And of course, there are photos of the trip at the same webpage. Anei a wee paratanatoko with this week's Whakatauki. Ka mate te kaingatahi, ka ora te kaingarua. When one health dies, a second lives. Ano nei ko te tikanga ki ahau, he mahanga kainga te Māori. Nō reira ka whati mai, ka mate mai te kaingatahi, me haere koe ki te kaingarua. Arano he whakamārama ki tō te whakatauki nei. Mena ka mate mai he whakaaro he kaupapa, ka orano he whakaaro he kaupapa. To me, this whakatauki speaks about don't give up, no matter how hard it is. If one thing dies, another will come about. Ko wiparatanga toko tēnei, e tuku ngā mihi kia koutou. Ko mauau taku maunga, ko tauranga taku moana, ko huria tōku marae, ko mōtu o whai te wāhi tapu, ko kopu rere roa te awa. Ti hei mauri ora. Kua tai anō ki te kapinga a te ahika. That's us for another week. On Friday, I went to a day symposium on Boy, yes, the film. I'll report back on that next week. And we also have its writer and director, Taika Waititi, and his mum, Robin Cohen, who I caught up with recently at the Victoria University Alumni Awards, where Waititi became a distinguished alumni. Atu i tērā ki ngā kaimahi i whakapaipai te hōtaka nei marungo rorohiko, ka mau te wehi. Mai te whānau a te ahikā, ki a tatai katoa. Mauri ora tatou katoa. Kia ora, this is your boy Logan Bell from the band Catch a Fire. Kia ora, this is Jamie Ferguson from the band Catch a Fire. Kia ora everyone, this is your boy Leon Davey. Kia ora, this is Leon Davey. This is one of my tunes called Love Letter.
Tuan 